You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. My name is Wesley Grogan, and today we're going to be reading through Luke 19, verses 28 to 48. And in the chairback Bibles in front of you, that's pages 826 and 825. Starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mountain called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away found it, and just as he had told them, And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole magnitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to them, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day that the things that make for peace But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for just today and that we have a place where we can freely worship you in a country where we can freely worship you. Thank you for your word and its truth. We just ask that you would really give us soft hearts to hear your word, an open mind to hear your word, and ears tuned into you, and that you would speak well through Jonathan. It's in your name we pray. Amen. In 27 BC, during the reign of Caesar Augustus, an era of unprecedented peace and prosperity began in the Roman Empire. This era, referred to as the Pax Romana, meaning Roman peace, would last for over 200 years. And it meant a time of renewed life and glory for the Roman world. During Pax Romana, the Roman 
uh, Pax Romana, Rome became a virtually unstoppable world power. The Roman economy went through the roof, and eternal conflict became almost non-existent. If you were a Roman, Roman peace meant Roman prosperity. But peace and prosperity was not for everyone. For the Jews in Israel, Pax Romana did not mean peace. It meant subjugation. It meant tyranny. It meant oppression. For the Jews, like many non-Roman citizens, Roman peace did not mean freedom. Roman peace was more about tyranny. It meant heavy taxes. It meant following strict rules. And sometimes it meant even compromising their religious beliefs. Uh, On top of that, Roman peace did not even mean an end of warfare. You see, during the time of Pax Romana, Rome became a world superpower. They amassed this giant army that would conquer surrounding territories, and they would use that army to enforce their strictly their strict rule of order. For those who rebelled against the Roman Empire, it, it often meant imprisonment and torture and sometimes execution. And many times it meant a combination of the three. In that day and age, the the tools of choice were flogging and crucifixion. They were meant to torture and humiliate and execute their offenders, with the added bonus of dissuading anyone from rejecting Roman rule. Now, I'm sure you can imagine that Pax Romana greatly affected the daily life of the Jewish people. And it even affected how they operated in their Jewish beliefs. But you may be surprised to find that it actually affected their way of thinking. You see, what Pax Romana did was cause the Jewish people to change the way they thought about God's promise to one day rise up a deliverer to bring salvation to his people. In those days, the Jews were waiting for God to rise up a deliverer called a Messiah. And by the first century, they believed that this figure was coming to bring warfare. He was coming to conquer. He he would come and destroy all the Roman powers and establish the Jews as the reigning world power. In a sense, what they pictured this Messiah doing was reversing their situation with having the Jews on top and the Romans and the rest of the world submitting to their authority and power. The problem was is that this picture of the Messiah didn't actually look like the Bible's picture of the Messiah. It actually looked more like the Caesars. It looked like a conqueror, a a force of power and destruction, rather than what the Bible declared the Messiah would look like. You see, what the Jews had done is they had taken Scripture out of context. They ignored Scripture that pushed against their belief system, And they leaned into verses that may have suggested that their picture was right. And I think if we're all honest this morning, there are times when we can be influenced by things outside of the Bible that change the way we view Jesus. Things like political ideals or cultural ideas or even prominent Christian figures can influence the way we see Jesus. But for us this morning, we need to always be on guard that we are keeping our image of the Christ, the Messiah, our deliverer and savior in check with what scripture says Jesus actually looks like. 
in order to see that picture this morning, we are going to be taking a look at Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48. And I have to warn you, this morning, this, this sermon is going to be awful technical. We're going to see a lot of cross-references in, in Scripture that is working within our text to provide context for what's going on in our passage. But we need to do the hard work of peeling back the layers of our Scripture so we can see the real picture of Jesus that Luke is laying out for us. Specifically this morning, Luke will be using the book of Zechariah to paint a picture of what Jesus actually looks like. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking right now, I don't know anything about the book of Zechariah. And others of you are thinking, I didn't even know Zechariah was in the Bible. Well, that's okay. Because as we walk through this text, we'll see that picture painted vividly of what Zechariah is pointing to. But let me give you a quick breakdown of what's going on in that prophetic book. You see, Zechariah was written during the time of Babylonian exile after the Babylonians had come in and conquered Jerusalem, destroying their city and their temple. And the message of this book, the book of of Zechariah, it's all about God's prophetic promise to one day restore Jerusalem after its destruction during the Babylonian exile. Let me say that one more time for you if you didn't get it. Zechariah is a prophetic book That is all about God's prophetic promise to one day restore Jerusalem after its destruction during the Babylonian exile. Now, this is important for two reasons. Number one, for the Jews, Zechariah was directly pointing to the Messiah, their coming deliverer. And so for them, as they're seeing the scripture fulfilled, they should understand and know that it is, in fact, Jesus. And number two, the reason that this book is important is because this morning, Jesus is beginning to wake his way into the city of Jerusalem. And we will see how this scripture comes alive as we point through all these references. And what we will see this morning is three images of Jesus that we draw out of the book of Luke in reference to Zechariah that will paint a picture of how we are to respond to Jesus. So with that in mind, please open up your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 48, as we dive into three images of our Messiah. The first image we'll see this morning is, number one, a king of humility and power. Now, immediately as we open up our text, what you note is that Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. And that's kind of a big deal at this point in the book of Luke. Uh, That's because Luke has been painstakingly over and over and over again preparing us for this moment. You see, back in chapter 9, verse 51, Luke told us that Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem. In other words, he had been making his way to the city. And then for 10 chapters afterwards, Luke had been referencing over and over and over and over again that Jesus is making his way to the city. And now the moment is finally here. Jesus has finally made it to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, the center of religious activity for the Jewish people. And and he is doing so on a very important holiday referred to as the Passover, which was a, a celebration of God's deliverance 
from evil, foreign, oppressive powers. So you have to imagine that as Jesus is making his way into the city on this holiday, expectations are high over God's deliverance. Expectations of their coming Messiah are at the peak during the time of the Passover. And Jesus is choosing this holiday specifically to signal to the Jews that he is the one he's looking for. But there's more signals here as we peel through the text that Jesus actually is this Messiah. Right off the bat in verse 29, you'll note that Jesus is going to make his way to the city from the Mount of Olivet, also referred to as the Mount of Olives. Now, we may think of this as some sort of geological footnote, but this Mount of Olives is actually really important to the Jewish people. Number one is because they believe that the Messiah would come from the Mount of Olives. So it was an important place to them. But it's also our first reference back to the book of Zechariah. Uh, Listen to what it says in Zechariah 14, verse 4. It says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall be moved northward and the other half southward. So what Luke is doing by explicitly pointing out the Mount of Olives is signaling to us as readers that this is the one we're looking for. But it was also a signal to the Jews who were watching and waiting and anticipating that this Jesus is the Messiah that they've been longing for. He is the one who is going to make the way from the Mount of Olives to bring their salvation. And they should have been on guard. But not only is Jesus chosen a specific location of how he's going to, not only has Jesus chosen a specific location that he's going to enter the city, he also has a specific plan of how he's going to enter the city. Uh, In verses 30 and and 31, it says, uh, as Jesus is speaking to two of his disciples, he says, go into the village in front of you, where on entering it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You should say this, the Lord has need of it. Now, it's notable that Jesus knows exactly how things are going to go down. He knows that there's going to be a specific cult in this city, and when the disciples go to take it, the owner is going to relinquish this donkey into their control. But certainly, if you know who Jesus is and you've seen all of his miracles, it's not that big a deal. Of course, Jesus isn't going to know what's going to happen. But we should also know that Jesus didn't just come up with this plan that morning. He didn't even come up with this plan in his lifetime. Because, in fact, this is another reference back to the book of Zechariah that is signaling to us that Jesus is the one we're looking for. Listen to what it says in Zechariah verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So you'll note here in Zechariah that it's referring to the exact plan that Jesus has told his disciples. And as Jesus' disciples procure this donkey and Jesus rides it into Jerusalem, it was a signal. It was a signal that this Messiah was their coming king. 
It's a signal that he is the one that they have been waiting for. And they should have understood this picture. But at the same time, this would have been a little bit shocking. Because when the Jews thought of a, a Messiah, they didn't think of a Messiah coming on a humble donkey. They thought of a warlord. They thought of a conqueror. They thought of a, a king who would come and overthrow the Roman powers. They thought of a man who would bring destruction. They thought of him on a war horse, not a donkey. But here we have Jesus humbly riding into the city, stooping himself down to ride on a lowly donkey. Certainly this wasn't the picture they had imagined. Certainly this is not how the Caesars would have done it. But this is the picture that Scripture paints for us. You see, Jesus isn't establishing his power over in military might or in his, or in his ability to conquer foreign powers. Jesus is establishing his power in humility. Jesus' power is in, in, embedded in who he is. It is embedded in his identity. It's embedded in his nature. As we continue on in our text, we'll see now that even though Jesus is humbly mounted on a donkey, his power will clearly be on display. Notice what happens in verse 38 as Jesus begins making his way into the city. We see here that his disciples begin singing this song. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, this song is a reference to Psalm 118, verse 22. And it's a song they would have sung on every single Passover. And you'll notice here that as disciples are singing this song, the Pharisees come to Jesus and he demands that they rebuke them. He demands that they stop singing a Psalm 118. Now, we could take this to believe that the Pharisees are upset that they're singing this specific song. But that's not actually the case. Because you see, this is a song that was sung on every single Passover. It, it was a song declaring their hope that their king was coming and that their king was on the horizon. That's not why the Pharisees are upset. You see, the Pharisees are upset not because of the song. They're upset because his disciples are attributing the song to Jesus. In, in other words, what they're saying is, this is in fact our king. This is, in fact, the one we've been waiting for. This is our deliverer. That was a huge deal. That was a massive claim, and it made the Pharisees upset with Jesus. But it was nothing compared to Jesus' response to them. Notice what he says here in the text. He says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, that's a big deal. Now, if, if the Pharisees were upset that his disciples were singing the song to Jesus, referring to him as king, certainly they were upset that Jesus said that very rocks would worship his names if his disciples remained quiet. This is a huge claim. Jesus is not just accepting the claim of him being their king, being their savior, their Messiah. Jesus is saying that creation itself will worship him. If his disciples remain quiet. 
Jesus is saying that not only does he come in the name of the Lord, not only does he come in humility, but he comes in the power of the God of creation. Because only he, only the God of all the earth, only the one who spoke things into creation deserves the worship of creation. You see, well, Jesus came in humility. He is clearly putting his power on display, saying, I am not only a king of humility. I am the king of power who could conquer the nations that you have been looking for. But Jesus doesn't need to conquer with military might. Jesus doesn't need to conquer with strength. Jesus conquers in weakness. Jesus conquers in humility because he is the king of humility and power. That's the image we see here in the text. And the question for us now is how are we to respond to this king? Our response is to worship the king. Now, I I know for us in our culture, the idea of a king is foreign. Uh, We don't have kings in our culture, but we need to understand when we refer to Jesus as king or Lord, we are referring to his authority. And and for us to respond to Jesus as king is a recognition that his authority covers all aspects of our life, all aspects of our living, all aspects of our daily worship. You see, we we commonly think of worship as singing songs and and singing praises, but worship is certainly much more than that. Worship is, is not only singing praises to the Lord, not only ascribing to Him the honor and glory that He deserves, it's living in response to His authority. It's recognizing in everything we do that Jesus is our Lord. He is our King. And oftentimes we can fall into the trap of thinking that certain areas don't fall under the authority of Scripture. But we constantly need to be coming to the commands of Jesus and responding, knowing that He has absolute control. He has absolute authority. He has absolute power. And we need to respond now. Because what Scripture testifies and what Jesus attests to is that, well, now we have a choice to worship Jesus. There will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Look how Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2. He says this, Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that every name, so at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, what Paul is illustrating for us is that there will come a time when we will see Jesus in all of his power, in all of his glory. 
And though now we recognize him in his humility, no, now we recognize him in his, in his weakness. There will one day we will see Christ in all of his lordship, in all of his kingly attire, in all of his glory, and we will have no choice but to worship. But on that day, there will be a separation between those who chose to live their life under the authority of Christ and those who rejected his authority. And there will be those who are welcomed into his kingdom and those who will be cast out. Church, we have to respond to Christ now. We have to recognize him as king now. We have to recognize his authority because one day we will have no choice other than to worship the king of humility and power. And that's the picture that Luke paints for us. But there's more to the picture that we see here in the book of Luke. So as we continue forward, we look at another image that Luke is painting for us in our text, which brings us to our second image this morning. Image number two is of a prophet of judgment and of peace. Now, as we make our way into verse 41, we see that Jesus is still drawing near to the city of Jerusalem. And the text says that as he drew near, he wept over it. In the Old Testament, anytime we see a prophet or a noble figure weeping, it was a sign of judgment. It was a sign that destruction was at hand. In 2 Kings, Elisha wept as he prophesied the coming destruction over Israel. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah wept as he foretold the disaster that was coming on his people. And now Jesus takes up this mantle by weeping over the city of Jerusalem. In the same spirit as Elijah and Jeremiah, Jesus weeps because he knows what's coming upon the city. Listen to what he says here in verses 33 and 34. It says, for the day will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What Jesus is describing here in our text is something that Jerusalem was familiar with. That's because 600 years earlier, the Babylonian Empire came against the city of Jerusalem and took its people into exile. They destroyed the city with its temple and brought judgment on God's people because they rejected the word of the Lord. And now Jesus is declaring that history is going to repeat itself. Once again, just like their forefathers, the Jewish people rejecting the word of the Lord. And now as the Lord is physically making his way into Jerusalem, many of its inhabitants will fail to recognize who he truly is. And so judgment is coming. Jesus' prophetic prediction is pointing forward to the fall of Jerusalem that will happen 40 years in the future. In 67 AD, the city will be surrounded by a siege that will last for three years. Historians describe this siege as being so terrible that at times mothers were eating their own children just to survive because there was no food. And all of this because they rejected the word of the Lord. 
All of this because they rejected Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with the prophetic books, you would expect a prophet to be prophesying judgment. But this would have been a little shocking for the Jewish people. Because when they thought of the Messiah coming, they didn't think that his judgment would be on the Jewish people. And and certainly they didn't think it would be on Jerusalem. But what Jesus is declaring is that not only judgment is coming, Jesus is also bringing the peace that they've been longing for. The, The restoration with God that they had been hoping for. Look what he says in verse 42. He says, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Jesus' statement here is a a bit of a play on words. Jerusalem is translated the city of peace. So the city of peace of all people should have known the things that make for peace. But there's another layer to what's going on here. Because this, once again, is a reference to the book of Zechariah. And in this reference is a revelation of Jesus' actual purpose in coming to the city. Look with me at Zechariah uh, chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. It says, Again, I have purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem, to the, into the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you should do. Speak the truth to one another and render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Notice that last statement. That is a a direct quote from the book of Luke. The things that make for peace. You see, what Jesus is revealing here is that while judgment is coming down the line, ultimately Jesus has come to bring reconciliation. Jesus has come to restore the city. Jesus has come to make peace. But because the city wanted judgment, because they wanted God to be stirred up against his enemies, they too would receive judgment. You see, what they failed to realize by rejecting the word of the Lord, by turning from God, and by failing to recognize who Jesus was, they had made themselves God's enemies. And now they were going to receive judgment. But Jesus' ultimate purpose in coming in the city was not to destroy. It was to offer forgiveness. It was to bring the reconciliation that they had longed for. It was to bring peace. And that peace is not only available to those in Jerusalem, that peace is available for us here today. And as we await the time of coming judgment, when the Lord will judge the people who have turned to him, we too need to respond faithfully to the priest who came in judgment and peace. So how are we to respond? Our response is to trust the message of the prophet. For us to say that Jesus is a prophet is to say that the words that Jesus is declare are the guaranteed promises of our God. They are promises that we can be assured of that will come in the future. No matter what befalls this world, no matter what happens around us, God's promises will come true. And we can trust that the coming judgment that Jesus declares is going to happen. 
There will be a day when we all stand before our Creator. A day when we all stand before Jesus and we will have to answer whether we trusted God or rejected God. But we also need to recognize that God, Jesus' promises of truth, that Jesus' promises of peace are still are coming true also. In the same way that Jesus declared that destruction is coming, he declared that he was the bringer of peace. That he had come to offer a hand of salvation to those who were far off from God. He had brought hope to those who were formerly his enemies. And we can trust that if we have received that peace, if we have received that salvation, that nothing in all of creation will stop God's peace from coming. We can be certain that no matter how broken we are, no matter how far off we are, that if we accept this peace, it'll last forevermore. Here's how Paul says it in Romans chapter 5. He says, if, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have reconciliation. You see what Paul is declaring. What he is telling us is that the peace of Christ is not the peace of the Caesars. It's not one that brings harsh judgment. It's not one that brings an oppressive hand. It's one that brings freedom. It's one that brings hope. It's one that brings true prosperity. One that we can live in forevermore with no more fear that God will bring his wrath upon us. It's a peace that is made not by our actions, not by who we are, but by who Jesus is and what he was getting ready to do in Jerusalem. Christ has bring, come to bring peace, and he is offering it with a gentle hand. But we also need to be warned of the coming judgment, and we need to respond to the prophet faithfully, because Jesus truly is the prophet of both judgment and of peace. This, once again, is the image that Luke paints for us. An image that he is crafting from the book of Isaiah. But there's one more image that Luke has painted for his audience. Image number three, the priest who casts out and draws near. Now, in our final section of our text, or sorry, in our first two sections of our text, we saw Jesus making his way towards Jerusalem. And as we already referenced Luke has been referring to this entrance into Jerusalem for the past 10 chapters. We've been waiting for it and longing for it and anticipating it. But then in verse 45, we see kind of a weird jump. Notice it says in verse 45 that Jesus entered the temple. Notice that that doesn't say Jesus entered Jerusalem. The temple is in the middle of the Jerusalem, so obviously at some point Jesus had to enter the city. But rather than referring to this entrance, we have Jesus making his way directly to the temple. What, what Luke is doing for us, what he is showing us of Jesus here in the text, is that Jesus has always had his sights set on the temple. 
As Jesus was making his way to the city, he was making his way to God's holy house. And certainly, if you remember back to the early chapters of Luke, the temple played a huge part in Luke's early gospel. The temple was where the priest Zechariah was met by an angel that told him one day he would father a boy who would make way for the coming of the Lord. It was in the temple where Simeon made it clear that Jesus is the Lord and Messiah that we've been waiting for. It was also in the temple where a prophetess named Anna came worshiping the Lord at the arrival of Jesus and declaring him to be the redemption of Jerusalem. And finally, when Jesus was 13, it was in the temple where his parents found him. And he told them, did you not know I must be in my father's house? See, so for two decades, Jesus has been making his way back to this temple. And finally, Jesus has returned home. Finally, he has made it to his father's house. And as we read forward in verses 45 and 46, we will see that Jesus is making it clear that this is, in fact, his house. Look what he says here. It says, He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, I want you to notice the possessive pronoun there. He says, this is my house. Now, this is a, a, reference, to Zachar, uh, uh, sorry, a reference to Isaiah verse 56, verse 7. Uh, Jesus is literally quote, quoting scripture here. But Jesus is also ascribing the scripture to himself. He is saying, this is my house, and you have corrupted it. But I think there's even more going on in this text. Because once again, we have another reference back to the book of Zechariah. We see here in Zechariah, verse 14 and 21, that it says this. And in every pot in Jerusalem and Judea shall be uh, holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So once again, we have a sort of a signal flare uh, signaling to us in the original audience that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. He's the one who comes and clears out the traitors from the house of the Lord. He is the one who comes and clears out those who have corrupted his father's temple. He is the one who casts out those who have rejected God's goodness for the sake of their own wealth. And in doing so, as Jesus fulfills this prophecy, he is not only clearing out those who have corrupted the temple, he's also establishing himself as the priest who does the holy work that God has assigned for them. Notice here in verses 47 and 48, it says, And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on their words, on his words. Now what you should notice here is happening in this text is that the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men are upset that Jesus is teaching in the temple. Now they're not upset just because Jesus is teaching. They're upset because the temple is their place of teaching. They're upset because the temple was seen as their place of authority. But now Jesus is rejecting them and their teaching because they had turned from the ways of the Lord. 
And what Jesus is doing is setting himself up as the new high priest, the new priest who makes intercession on behalf of his people, who not only casts out those who rejected the word of the Lord, but is drawing in the people who are hanging on his words. Jesus is setting himself up as the priest. Now there's another cool connection that we see here in the text, kind of a bonus prophetic connection. You see, what we note here in the beginning of our text is that Jesus made his way into Jerusalem as a king. And now we see him setting himself up as a priest. So Jesus is the priest king. Now that's kind of a strange picture that we don't commonly see in the Old Testament. But there's two references that are extremely important to what's going on in our text. The the first reference is in the book of Genesis. You may remember the priest king Melchizedek, who was king over Salem who went out and blessed Abraham after his battle with the four armies. If you're interested in learning more about Melchizedek, you can look him up in Genesis verse, uh, chapter 14 and in Hebrews chapters 5 and 7. But there's another important reference to the priest king in the Old Testament. You probably guessed it in the book of Zechariah. In Zechariah 6, 12 to 13, it says this, And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is, in the, is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And notice this part. It says, And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the counsel of his peace shall be between them both. So once again, as we see Jesus making his way to the temple, we see the king coming and sitting on his throne. We are seeing a fulfillment of God's holy scripture. We are seeing Jesus signaling to the people that I am the one you have been waiting for. I am the one you have been longing for. I am the prophet who comes in the name of the Lord. I am the one who ministers to his people on their behalf in the temple. And here comes Jesus, the priest, who both casts out those who reject his teaching and draws those nears who are hanging on his every word. So the question for us this morning as we see this final picture of Jesus is how are we to respond? Our response is to receive the word of the priest. Now again, the the picture of a priest is not something we see in our culture. But in the Old Testament, a priest was an interse- uh, interceded on behalf of God's people. He, he mediated on behalf of those who were drawing near to God. He separated them from God's goodness. But Jesus has come to draw us near. Jesus is the perfect pi- picture of the priest who intercedes on the behalf of his people. He's the one who makes true atonement for those who have thrown themselves into sin. He is the one who brings true forgiveness for those who have rebelled against God. Not by giving sacrifices of rams and of goats and of lambs, but by his own blood. Jesus dies on our behalf so that we who are formerly enemies of God are able to draw near. We who have no right to come before God's throne, no right to come before God's temple, can have forgiveness in the hands of Jesus. We can have confidence 
no matter what we've done in the past, no matter what we will do tomorrow, that Jesus can draw us near to God. Look what Hebrews says about this confidence in chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, we can trust this promise of Jesus because he suffered on our behalf. We can trust this promise of Jesus because when we were far off, he came to draw us near. We can have confidence, not based on who we are, but who Christ is. He is the priest who is casting out those who reject his teaching. But he's also come to draw you near. And we need to respond now to the teachings of Jesus. We need to trust the word of Scripture and hold it up above the authorities of this earth. We need to respond and soak in the word of the Lord, knowing that he is able to bring forgiveness. We have to respond to the priest now. Because he is kind and he is drawing us near. And what we are seeing of these images of Jesus scattered throughout Luke's gospel and brought into clarity here in Luke chapter 19 is that Jesus truly is our Messiah. He is the king. He is the prophet. He is the priest who has come in the name of the Lord. He has come to give us the perfect picture of salvation, the perfect picture that has been laid out through all of Scripture and the picture that we will one day see when we stand in glory. And we have to respond to Him today. Knowing that there will come a time when all of the prophecies that were prophesied in Scripture all of the promises that God gave will come to fruition, knowing that everything that Christ spoke will come true, knowing that if we respond to Jesus, He will deliver us from all of our sin and brokenness. Knowing that one day, though we see Him partially in Scripture, we will see Him fully in heaven. We will see Him in a new Jerusalem. A Jerusalem not like the old Jerusalem that rejected his promises, that turned from his peace, but a new Jerusalem where we will have a hope that is everlasting. A new Jerusalem where we will stand before our Messiah forever and we will worship in his holy name. A new Jerusalem where there will be no tears, no more mourning, no more pain but only worship of the good and holy name of the Lord. But we need to respond to Jesus now. For some of you, the response you need to make this morning is repentance. You need to admit that you've been living under your own authority and you've been rejecting the authority of God. You need to admit that you have been living in sin and brokenness, that you have been far off from God. You need to turn from your brokenness and turn to Jesus because he is the only one who can save you from your sins. You need to make this response knowing that no matter what you've done, no matter what evil you've committed, 
Jesus can forgive you. And he will forgive you if you place yourself under his kingly authority. For others of us this morning, we need to respond to Jesus by rejecting the false pictures that we've created in our mind and turning fully to Scripture and worshiping His good and holy name. Knowing that Jesus is our ultimate authority. Knowing that Jesus is the one who has made peace for us through God. Knowing that Jesus is the one drawing us near. And the perfect picture can only be found in Scripture. And in having that scripture this morning, and having that perfect picture, we need to rejoice in every aspect of our lives. Because we know there is hope waiting for us. Because Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. He is the Messiah, the King, the Prophet, the Priest. And He has come to bring us peace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a perfect picture. That you have brought a Messiah that is much different than the picture that the world has to offer. One that brings love and grace. One that brings salvation and peace. One that brings forgiveness to those of us who deserve no forgiveness. Lord, give us the grace to respond to Jesus now, knowing that in eternity we will have peace forever. We pray these things in the good and perfect name of Jesus. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.